Podcast is always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is September the 6th, 2013. This is episode 1202 of the Survival Podcast, and it's Friday, Friday, Friday. That's right, Friday. Not monster trucks, but monster calls. Your calls to the Think Line, 866-65-THINK. Again, 866 866- 65-T-H-I-N-K. You pick up your phone, you mash those numbers or touch those keypads, and uh, you'll get a recording. You'll leave me a message. i got to tell you, the call volume is is gone kind of crazy in the last couple months. And uh, it used to be probably 30%, 40% of calls got on the air. It's probably like 10 to 15 by now. I'm sorry. These shows are going like two hours because I'm putting, you know, 10 calls for myself, six, seven calls for expert panel members into them. And that's about as long as we can do a call-in show. Um, and I, I'll be honest with you. It's not even just like only the best calls get on. It's, it's honestly the point. Now where not every call gets screened. So if you've called more than a couple weeks ago and you haven't heard your call, it would be a good idea to maybe just redo that call. And I apologize for not being able to cover them all, but I am only one man. Uh, if you want to make that call and you don't have letters on your uh, phone, some people tell me that's the case. It's 866-658-4465. Again, 866-658-4465. Uh, when you make your call, do it from a quiet area. Make sure you have good signal on your cell phone. If you're using a cell phone, speak loud so that you may be heard well. And do not turn your head away from the phone and then back to the phone and away from the phone. Don't do that to me. And don't call from a motorcycle or while running a weed whacker or a chainsaw. Anyway, uh, if you do that and I get to your call, we'll probably get you on the air. If you do call for an expert council member, make sure you send me an email letting me know that. And uh, I'll try to give your call priority to dig it out of the queue. All right, with that, let's go ahead and take care of our housekeeping. Housekeeping item one, as always, let's take care of our sponsors. Sponsor of the day number one today, ready-made resources. There's not much more you can ask for from a company this day and age than for their name to say what they do and then have them do it over and over again. That's what ready-made resources does. They do what they say and say what they do. All the resources you need for your prepping, ready-made, ready-to-go, point, click, and buy on their website. Great pricing, great customer service, and lightning-fast shipping. You'll find it all at ready-made resources, from gardening to guns and everything in between. If you need it, they got it. ReadyMadeResources.com. Next up, someone that doesn't have it all. They got really one thing. They do one thing. I guess they do some magazines and stuff like that as well. But when it comes down to it, they focus on one thing, and they do it better than anybody else I know. BulkAmmo.com. As you might imagine, that one thing would be ammo. Your gun, no ammo, expensive club. Your gun, ammo, effective weapon. Get it? That's how it works. You need ammo. You need ammo to use if you need your gun, and you need ammo to train with your gun so that you'll be effective if you ever need to use it. And that's anything from putting deer on the table to keeping bad guys from hurting your family. You need to have ammo so you can train for both of those so that you'll be effective with it. And ammo occasionally gets hard to come by. Not so much right now, other than 22 long rifles. When the hell are they going to come back to where you can just go get some? Uh, but other stuff's not that hard to come by now. I'd use the opportunity while it's there to stock up on that ammo. Great place to do it, BulkAmmo.com. 
Shipping so fast, your neck will snap at how quick the stuff shows up at your door. First time you order from them before you have an account, you do have to send them ID. That's just part of shipping ammo. Once that's done, you order again in the future, and you'll just like think, how'd that get here so fast? That's how good they are at what they do. Check them out today, bulkammo.com. Um, next up, want to remind you guys about 13skills.com. I know that site kind of, it's kind of a cool idea. We put it together. You go over there, you set your goals, and then you just kind of go back whenever you feel like it, and there's not a lot of interactivity. But I got big news. Monday, version 2.0 is coming out. It will be interactive. You'll be able to follow people and see their activity versus everybody's activity. You'll be able to comment back and forth between each other, communicate with other members. It's going to look so much cooler. Uh, we're going to have little badge icons for all the different skill sets. We won't have all the icons made yet, but David Larson's got a bunch of them made. He's been working behind the scenes. It's been a long time coming. I think when you see the upgrade of 13 skills, uh, you'll realize that site's finally going to become what it can become. So uh, if you go over there today, it won't look any different, but watch for Monday. Monday, we got big things coming at 13skills.com. Uh, last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. You'll help support the show at a whopping 18.3 cents an episode, Military, Law Enforcement, Peace Corps, And first responders like firefighters, EMTs, and paramedics, whether you are active duty or prior service, I offer you a discount. Simply send me an email. In that email, put service discount in the subject line, and in one or two sentences, tell me who you are and what you're doing, or who you are and what you did if you're prior service, and I will respond back to you with a discount code for you to join the MSB at a discount. If you email me before, not after, you join. If you do it after... I'll tell you how on renewal to take care of it because it's difficult to fix it once you've already joined. All right, with that wrapped up, let's get into the main topic of today's show. Uh, I'm going to continue with my uh, with my series or my uh, my new little segment here on what happened in the year of the episode's number. So 1202, a long time ago, uh, on May 20th, there was the 1202 Syrian earthquake. This should get your attention, uh, disaster-ish people. 1202 Syrian earthquake struck at dawn about 20 May 1202 with an epicenter in southwestern Syria. Up to 1.1 million deaths have been associated with the earthquake, although other estimates are much smaller. It was felt over a wide, a very wide area from Sicily to Iraq to Anatolia to Upper Egypt. The cities of Tai, Asir, and Nablus were heavily damaged. Uh, the earthquake has an estimated magnitude of a 7.6, which doesn't sound that big, but it was a long-duration earthquake, so it had the damage equivalent of an 11. <laughs> oh, my God. That's insanity. Um, so that's it caused uh, tsunamis and all types of other things. You know what? The, the, the deaths of 1.1 million is probably accurate if you've taken into account, like, all the peripheral damage that earthquake did, and um, all of the uh, the misery that probably came from you know food loss, crop loss, and things like that, interruption of commerce, etc. Uh, so when we hear about these big earthquakes, they're nothing new. Uh, Genghis Khan crushes the Tartars. Who were the Tartars? They were uh, an ethnic group in uh, Russia in the Volgol region. So the 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 Mongol hordes are moving. Moving west from the east slowly. Well, you know, that's going on. 
we the, the Fourth Crusade begins and the Siege of Zara. Listen to this, guys. This is remember the Crusaders who are going to go bring religion to the heathens and okay, 1202. And the first major action of the Crusade again. This was the Fourth Crusade. The Crusaders besiege and conquer Zaitar in Croatia, unable to pay the Republic of Venice in cash for its contributions to the Crusade. The Crusaders agree to sack the city, an economic rival to Venice, despite letters from Pope Innocent III forbidding such action and threatening excommunication. This is the first attack against a Catholic city by the Catholic Crusaders. Double cross, huh? So the Venice f uh, funded the warfare of the Crusade, but the Crusaders couldn't pay him back, so they made a deal with him. We'll go sack this other city that's already Catholic. And just screw everything up for them so you guys can stay prominent. Yeah, nothing. So what that is old, which that which is old is new again. Is that how they say it? Here's the one. How many have heard of Fibonacci? Fibonacci, the Fibonacci sequence, right? Um, pretty well known. Leonardo Fibonacci of Pisa writes Liber Abrace about the modern modus indorum, which is something. Uh, the Hindu Arabic numeral system, including the use of zero, it is the first major work in Europe to move away from the use of Roman, Roman numerals. So um, Fibonacci, well known for the Fibonacci sequence in 1202, actually put Europe on track to move away from the Roman numeral system to the number system we have today. That's kind of interesting. So 1202, kind of an interesting year. And uh, with that wrapped up, let's go ahead and take your first call today. I have some really awesome calls for you guys today and a lot of appearances by members of our expert council. Hey, Jack. This is Mark calling from California. My family and I were thinking of walking the Freedom to the Dallas-Fort Worth area next year. But we've noticed that the housing prices have jumped substantially since April, May of this year. Is the DFW area going to be the next housing bust? It seems just like California with huge housing price spikes. Couple that with the interest rates and rising interest rates and taxes that are reevaluated every year. Are people going to be able to afford homes in that area? Thanks for all you do. Bye. I, 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 well, before I answer that question, actually, I, I missed something in the year 1202 segment. Do you notice that while everybody's just behaving as normal, England and France are still fighting wars, crusades are going on, one city sacking another, the hordes, the Mongols, the, the barbarians are moving in, and, and, and nobody's really got their eye on that ball. Interesting. Anyway, kind of makes you think of today. Anyway, so um, Dallas-Fort Worth property pricing. Here's what's going on. It's not unique to Dallas-Fort Worth as far as property price increasing. We had some of the worst performing real estate markets uh, across the country for quite a few years, and new housing developments went, like, away. They just were not building new houses. I mean, you always say the new housing starts are lower this year than last year. So what happened is a tremendous amount of inventory went onto the market of existing homes. But at the same time, you have population growth and things like that. And cities like Dallas definitely are having population growth. And the suburbs around Dallas far more than Dallas itself. I, I'm going to tell you right now, if you're going to move here, do not live in the city of Dallas. Let me say it one more freaking time. Do not live inside Dallas city limits. You will not be happy if you live inside Dallas city limits, if you're the kind of person that's listening to this show. But the suburbs are having massive growth. Um, and 
what's what's happened is is the growth has happened and you have this glut of houses and we had our own problems with foreclosures not as bad as the rest of the country but those got taken up and now they're not building and yet the population's growing and this was well forecasted that part of the recovery would be a, a spike in real estate prices so people can now get loans again but interest rates are a little bit higher and it's kind of moving into a phase that you call the seller's market where if you have a desirable property um you can pretty much get market rate for for it pretty guaranteed and houses are selling pretty quickly does that mean that Dallas Fort Worth and surrounding suburbs are a potential newest you know housing bubble Possible but not probable. If you see a bust here, you're going to see a bust everywhere. This is one of the more stable uh, economies. I'm not saying it can't have its problems. It did. It's not like we walked through the recession unscathed. We just didn't get. We got smacked around, not beaten down. All right. That's that's who I'm going to put all of Texas. Texas got smacked around in the rest of the, in the recession, and most of the nation got beaten down. I mean, you know, like Dallas was this, you know, like just a smack in the face type of thing where like if you were in like Phoenix or California or Florida, you got like jumped by like three dudes, hit on the ground, kicked in the kidneys, ended up in the ER where like all Dallas and San Antonio and Austin and all got was maybe a, a little bit of a fat lip. That that's so it's not like we didn't get it. We just didn't get it as bad. Um, and there's some of some of that's part of this uh, uh, assumed inflation and pricing of the houses. Some of it's not so much the pricing went up. The pricing recovered. Uh, the, and I'll tell you this, too, though. There's no shortage of affordable housing in Dallas Fort Worth. It depends on what you want. Um, and one of the things you've got to really do when you look at housing in Dallas and in and, and North Texas in general is compare the cost of a house here to a cost of a house just about anywhere else. I mean, even southern states like Georgia or Florida, what you can buy in Texas, for those that want like the McMansion-type house, for a half a million dollars will boggle your freaking mind. So even if pricing goes up some, it's still well below the national average on square footage comparable housing and things like that. There's some things you can do to mitigate this. Um, if you're looking in kind of the HOA, artsy-fartsy, quote-unquote good schools uh, places that are more in demand, you're going to see some escalated pricing. Let me tell you about the schools in, in this area. They're all pretty much the same. They all pretty much suck. I mean, seriously, they do. They, they, there is, and, and, and oh God, I don't know if I want to go to Texas. Well, I think schools in New York suck. Schools in Connecticut suck. Schools in Georgia suck. The public education system sucks. So what you're really concerned about with, you know, is a school a good school uh, for your children if you have to rely on public education? Is it a safe school? Because the education is the same everywhere. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, but it is. It's, it's state mandated. It's the same crap. So I wouldn't pay significantly more for a school district that's supposed to be better because my question to that is always, what are they better at? Indoctrination, right? I mean, so... Um, if you'll try not to find the best, as though you know your, your child is being prepared for Harvard or Yale, because if they're doing that, they're going to private school anyway, um, and you'll go for a good quality, decent school system uh, that where you don't have to worry about a lot of gang violence and crap like that, like you do in some of the inner city schools, then you put that to bed, and you'll leave a little further out from 
the, the centers of the cities, you can still find very, very affordable housing. And then the, the, the sweet spot in this area is, if you want to live like I do, find that unincorporated area that's further out. And in that instance, you get complete freedom from everything. And you can find some acreage, an acre, two or three. Um, or the other thing is find a nice, decent-looking suburb that's been around for 10 or 15 years. Uh, it doesn't have an HOA, and we have lots of those. It has working-class, everyday families living in it. And look for the house that needs some love. It's not broken. It just needs carpet and paint and stuff like that. There's a lot of that out there. And because there's so many people doing a good job of marketing their real estate, those properties sell for well under their market value. We did great on both houses we bought uh, in the, the Dallas-Fort Worth area in suburbs in the past because we were willing to say, okay, I'll paint it. We'll put some carpet in, put some tile down, because right? they didn't show that great. We looked for... Good quality neighborhood, decent people, decent schools, and the house's dimensions, how big it was, what kind of did it fit our lives. So that's how I'd shop for real estate here, and I wouldn't worry about us becoming a bubble. And if we do become a bubble, we've got a long way to go before bubbles inflated. Uh, this would be the little tiny, itty bitty, you know, bubblegum bubble. This isn't the great big giant bubble that you see when they take one of those giant bubble maker things that right before it explodes. All right. Anyway, good question. Let's take another one. Hello, this is Todd W. Cohn in the forums. I wanted to call and say thank you for all you've done for me and my family. In April, my wife's contract was up, so we just chose to move to Kentucky for a bit since the three part-time jobs I had would not support us. I part-time jobs that I had. I was happy to help me look for a position closer to Louisville. And I applied for the Louisville Metro EMS. In June, several things happened. I graduated from college. Louisville EMS hired me as a paramedic, and we moved from Cleveland to Louisville. In August, on the 18th, I was notified I was going to fill a vacancy in a deploying unit that is leaving for Moab Station sometime around the end of September. About five weeks' notice with immediate orders process. This is why we want to thank you. The last five plus years, somewhere around episode 150, you and the members of the forum have kept us motivated to keep preparing. You and your guests have provided us with ideas, plans, and reasons to stay the course. The forum is a master's degree worth of information. The MSB has helped us fill holes in our plan while saving us money. Because of you, the show, the forum, I can leave with eight days' notice. That's the number of days I get to spend with the family before we do a hit deployment. I don't have to worry that they might not have food, water, power, or money. We're in the habit of food storage. The fall garden put in during the first week of August is going well. The existing fig tree has been harvested. And this weekend, with my last four days free, we're preparing our future strawberry patch in the area for our blueberries. Because we had our important papers in a binder, organized plans for this possibility, my MOBUP has gone very smoothly. When it was just me. My wife and kids are taken care of by all that we've done. We have a plan for things that they will continue to do while I'm gone, as we have to also start over our urban homestead in the city. My wife is very thankful for this, and very thankful that you started the TSP. You have helped this one this one soldier, and by extension, the nation, by keeping us on track to be better survivors. For that, thank you so much. Thanks I don't have a lot to add to that. That's just pretty dadgone awesome, isn't it? And uh, 
if you liked that, uh, this was unsolicited. I got an email from Top. Uh, this guy's a long-time member of this community uh, and an active member in the forums and, 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 and supports a lot of things that we do around here. Uh, but I got a letter from him that was basically what he said, and I emailed him back, and I asked him if I could read it on the show Monday, and then he emailed me back, or he didn't email me back yet, but I'm sure he will and say, I did, did, I called it in. I found it in the queue right after I sent that email. So, uh, Tom, I'm just happy for you, man, and thank you for your service to our nation at home and abroad, and uh, thank you for all you've done for this community. And if you, if you want to hear more stories like that, Our anniversary show that we did, or was it episode episode 1000, um, is like five hours of things just like that. If you ever feel that what you do doesn't matter, that you can't do it, that it's too much, plug into that show just for 20 or 30 minutes and you'll hear dozens of stories like that. So, so Top, thank you, and I will put a link to uh, episode 1000. And... Uh, Again, if you ever feel alone or you ever just need kind of some motivation and to know how many people really feel the way you do and are working for what you're working for, you can hear it in Top's voice. Listen to what other people have to say as well. Episode 1000 was uh, it was like a payday for me. It was like cashing in big time, right? I mean, instead of with money, it was like with just the immense amount of goodwill and social capital that TSP has created. That was uh, That was my best payday ever. And it was all things like you just heard from Top Cone. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is John in Indiana, and this is a question either for you or maybe for Ben Falk. Um, and it's regarding uh, your opinion, pluses or minuses, of a natural swimming pool. The background is I, I have a five-acre plot of land in Indiana. It's relatively flat ground, and there's no existing water feature that's currently on the property. So no stream, no pond, um, nothing of that sort. And I've debated putting in a very small water structure, such as a Koei pond or, or otherwise. And I've recently learned about this concept of a natural swimming pool. This is something that, you know, could be created like a pool, but has aquatic plants and other things sort of uh, planted in, in sort of shallow waters around the side to help keep the water clean And I'm, I'm intrigued, and yet at the same time a bit skeptical. Um, I obviously don't plan to, to put in something like this underneath a maple tree, but, you know, as, as leaves and other things blow into this uh, in the fall and winter, is it going to become more of a mess than, um, than actually what the benefit is worth? So I'm curious to know if you have an opinion on these, if uh, they really may be lower maintenance or better than a traditional swimming pool may be. Um, and again, certainly would love to have a water feature like this on the property, but if it could also be a swimming pool, uh, a natural swimming pool, that'd be great too. Look forward to your opinion. Thanks. With all of the cool things Ben's done with, you know, natural ponds and swimming and, and saunas and all kinds of cool stuff on his, uh, his homestead, there's no way I wasn't going to send that over. So Ben, what say you, brother? Hi, uh, Jack. Ben Falk uh, regarding the question on natural swimming pools. I think to start off, um, we should point out that a natural swimming pool is really no different than a healthy pond, uh, except the access and, and kind of the, the comfort of the pond, of the, of the water feature, is just higher. 
you know, imagine a pond with a nice gravel bottom and nice steps and oftentimes steep walls, and you have a natural swimming pool. Um, so that being said, just think of think of this as a as a great pond um, where you have some good access. It's really nothing different than a, than a healthy aquatic ecosystem, uh, which in which you don't need chemicals. And the the biggest thing to think of. Um, is your water source, what kind of quantity and quality of water do you have access to? The more water and the higher quality, the more likely it is, the easier it is to get a great natural swimming pool or pond. Um, and the, the lower quality or quantity you have and the more work you have to do, the better design, the more of an ecosystem you need to establish to filter, um, clean, aerate, oxygenate, the water that you do have and manage that small amount of, of, of flow that you do have. Uh, so if you're in a, the, the drier your climate and the smaller your site, um, the drier your site, as well as just the climate, but the actual water you have available to you on site, the harder you're going to have to work or, or the care, more careful you're going to have to be to design this, the more water you're going to have to harvest. So if you're in a wetter part of the country, you can do it pretty easily with rainfall, um, just surface flow. Um, you know, tapping into our, your roofs might be necessary in a drier area or even advantageous in a wet area. Um, you're going to want to create as much uh, biological activity as possible by creating shallow planting shelves, you know, not creating just steep walls, but basically a good chunk of the surface area of water wants to be in wetland and marginal plants. So you want to be making a stepped pond profile versus just your classic excavated dug bowl in the ground like a you know typical swimming pole like a half pipe on all sides you want to go with something that has a long shallow edge from zero inches to 18 inches deep over a very as long of a of an edge as you can you can possibly afford in space and then have a smaller deep area you want at least three quarters of the surface to be in that shallow marginal aeration, water quality enhancement ecosystem. Um, again, if you're in a wetter area, you could get away with less of an area. The drier and less water or less quality of water, more nutrient you have in your water, the more wetland area you're going to need to promote. Thanks and, and good luck. There's a lot of great resources for this subject online and in, um, some books that are out there. Uh, I know... Um, Art Ludwig's and Brad Lancaster's books are great resources for, for water um, projects in general. I'm not sure that there's a natural swimming pool book, although there might be. So good luck. Well, great stuff from uh, Ben Falk, as always. Um, while I've got his stuff queued up, let's go ahead. I've got another call for Ben, so I'm just going to play the question, and we'll go straight into uh, to Ben's response on it, and then I'll be back, and we'll move forward in the show. Hello, this is Ryan from Vermont, hopefully not talking to you from a soda bottle right now. Uh, I have a question for expert council member Ben Fox. It has to do with black locust trees. I am wondering how I should go about or how he would recommend me going about to plant uh, a uh, larger amount of black locust trees on my property. Um, I have thought about several different things. I could purchase seeds and start them in the fall and plant them in the spring. That might seem relatively easy. I could also purchase them from a reputable nursery somewhere. That seems quite a bit more expensive than buying seeds. And also, I have noticed that um, I've been bush hogging a field, a neighboring field recently, 
and I noticed that I had been bush hogging uh, black locust trees where I could probably pull out roots and have them grow from roots. It seems to me like I might be able to plant just a little bit more deliberately if I use bare rootstock, but if I bought that, it seems like it might be a little bit more expensive. What I'm trying to do is I'm trying to set up a living fence and set up some paddock, sh- uh, some paddock systems uh, on my property. Like I said, I live in Vermont. I have about 27 acres, and I'm trying to do a, uh, a livestock slash annual slash permaculture kind of like little farm area sort of thing. So any advice that you might have um, will be good. And also, uh, I feel all right with planting black locust trees, although some people say that they are an invasive species. Um, but I think it's all right because there's a lot anyways. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. Hey, Jack, Ben Falk calling about the black locust question. Uh, the best results we've found are from actually buying um, bare root trees, small, about 12 to 18-inch trees. They're only about a dollar a tree if you buy them in quantity. Uh, Lawyer Nursery sells quite a bunch, as does Coldstream. We've tried um, as well from seeds, but they need to be stratified, so we hadn't ha- we didn't have much success. We kind of hurried the process. But you can buy large amounts of seed for very cheap. Um, and we've tried rooted cuttings as well, or root cuttings, you know, ripping out a tree and then snipping the cuttings and put it in seed flats. But that takes quite a while. It seemed kind of labor-intensive, and they weren't very vigorous. Um, so I'd go with the 12 to even, you know, 20-inch, uh, trees for about a dollar a tree unless you really want to plant thousands and thousands and then i would try from seed and i would try to direct seed um i have an experiment with it with this yet but it's more our next step is to till lines on a landscape and actually direct seed them uh, i think that would probably work very well if you got your seed really prepped well um so good luck keep me posted because this is an important uh, opportunity to develop living fences in cold climates and we should, we should be trying, many of us should be experimenting with black locust in this way for, for tight density living fences for paddock shift and more. So good luck. Thanks to council member Ben Falk for two, uh, out of the park responses this, uh, this week. And I've got more expert council stuff coming for you in a bit, but, uh, next up we've got another question. This one's for me. So let's go ahead with that next call. Hey, Jack. This is Ben in Denver. Uh, just got finished listening to episode 1190, one of the holy crap shows, and you were going over some security stuff, and one of the things you mentioned uh, to check yourself on was, am I being stupid with security? And uh, my question is, how do you feel about the pro-gun stickers on your vehicle? Uh, here in Colorado, we have a pretty big group. It's uh, Rocky Mountain Gun Owners Association. And uh, they've had a pretty strong hand in some of the recall elections that we're going to be looking at next week for some of our uh, uh, government that is not really supporting the people and their opinions. Um, so I see guys, you know, with a sticker on their truck sometimes, and it's it's pretty cool to, you know, we get know we have some team members out there, and um, I've just wondered about placing one on my vehicle myself because I worry about drawing a little extra attention sometimes. Uh, so I just wonder what your thoughts are on, like, the NRA or any type of pro-gun stickers going on your vehicle. Uh, thanks, Jack, for everything you do, and uh, we'll talk to you later. Well, like most things in life, it's all about a balance of what you're 
what your desires are versus what is safe and, and, and what might attract attention. Um, the biggest reason I could see that it could be an issue is if you have pro-gun stickers, you probably own firearms, and therefore that might make you a greater target for theft, though it's proven over and over again in countless interviews with criminals in the, in the, in the, uh, the prison system that if they know someone has guns in a house, it's not a bigger target. It's a lower target unless they're absolutely 100% sure you're not there. Um, so it's the sophisticated criminal that, that, that might see that as an opportunity for theft. But honest to God, the sophisticated criminal that wants theft is a, it's a financial motivation is far more interested in robbing soccer moms of their jewelry, uh, and things like that. Cause it's easier to, to fence. It's easier to get a return on. It's faster. It's smaller. It's easier to carry. Um, you can only carry so many guns. It increases the, I mean, criminals, there are some dumb ones out there, right? But, They, 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 they tend to use a little bit of common sense or they're not very good and they end up in prison very, very quickly. And, and that is, you know, th that whole thing there, it's a, it's a bigger crime because now a gun's involved. Uh, you can only carry so many of them. They're, they're large. Um, and when you go to sell one, it's a more complex thing because it's, it's traceable and it's, it's not that they won't do it. It's that, you know, what's better to get away with 12 grand worth of jewelry or two or three long guns. So keep your gun secure, and, and that one gets mitigated. The other potential is becoming a target of people that say they don't like guns because of violence that want to be violent, and I, I'm not living my life in fear. I don't have a lot of uh, NRA stickers on my vehicles, but I have an Oath Keepers one on every vehicle. That's, that's you know, I don't want my vehicle all coated with stickers and things like that, um, but Oath Keepers is the, the choice of what I choose to display. And uh, that pretty much indicates you're probably if you've got an Oath Keeper sticker, you're probably armed, and it's it's you know got a silhouette of a guy with a with a with a rifle on it, so uh, it's pretty clear what it, the message is sending. And I'm not about to take it off. Now there are other stickers you can put on your car that maybe you shouldn't. We'll hear about that a little bit later in the show. Um, but would there possibly come a day where, in certain scenarios, maybe you should? keep a razor blade in your you know glove box of all your vehicles and you might remove it yeah and when when is that day and what causes it keep your ear to the ground and if you think if you think it's an issue maybe it is that, that's all i can say there but for right now i'm not taking down my oath keeper sticker and i wouldn't tell you to take down your nra sticker um would i go out of my way to tell you to definitely display something like that not necessarily i i wonder how effective decals and stickers and things like that really are anyway. The reason I like the Oath Keepers sticker is it's 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 a fraternity. Right? It's not so much you should do this or you should, it's it's telling other Oath Keepers I'm here. And when I walked through like a Lowe's parking lot like I did a couple months ago and there was like four trucks including mine parked almost so there was like one car in between two of them but four in a row. And all of them had Oath Keeper sticker on it. It felt pretty good. I can see feeling like that, you know, if you see NRA stickers and all as well. But stickers that are just like buy a gun and stuff like that, I don't know that that really helps. I know when I see stupid political stickers like, you know, you know, things that are overtly religious or overtly socialist and supporting people like Barack Obama, it never does anything to win me over. It really doesn't. 
And so to me, if I'm going to put something on my vehicle, it's going to be more of an affinity than it is about telling other people. It's not so much showing support, it's identifying myself. And then you are doing that. But then we have to decide, are we men that will stand or are we men that will cower and hide? And there's places for operational security, but there's also places where you stand and say, this is what I stand for. And I think that we have to use some common sense because I've seen some pretty inflammatory decals. My father-in-law put one on his car. It was Uncle Sam pointing, you know, I want you. And I said, I want you to speak English. And this guy's in his you know late 70s. It's like, dude, you need to just really, that's not smart. That's not smart. And it, it, that kind of thing is where I say, is it worth the risk to be insulting to other people? And personally, I don't think it was. Unfortunately, we were able to talk him out of continuing to, to do that. And now he doesn't drive anymore anyway. Anyway, that would be the type of thing I wouldn't do. And there's another thing I wouldn't do. But we'll hear about it later from a caller. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Scott from Nebraska. I am calling with an expert panel question for Mr. Stephen Harris regarding the GMAG saltwater battery charger. I was wondering if it works, how it works, and if it is worth having in a preparedness energy toolkit. I imagine that there are more than a few people in the survival podcast community that receive promotional emails from a certain Fort Worth, Texas-based firearms and firearms accessory dealer advertising this device, and I thought it might be worthwhile knowing what is behind it. Thanks in advance for your answer, and also for all of the work that you and Mr. Harris put into this community. Great question. I've never heard of this, so certainly I'm going to let Steve take it. I'm guessing that that certain accessory and firearms dealer would most likely be cheaper than dirt. I'm not sure of that, though, but I don't think we need to not mention names. If you ever call something in and someone's advertising something, uh, I'm not conventional radio. You say who they are if you want to. I don't, I don't have a problem with that. I don't know that it was a big deal or anything. I just want to point out that you can. Anyway, Steve, what's up with this stuff, man? Is it worth our time or, or our energy? Or does it give us enough energy to be worth our energy? Maybe that's a better question. What say you, Steve? Scott from Nebraska. That is a very, very good question. So you want to know three things. If it works, how it works, should never ask that one. And is it worth having in your preparedness energy toolkit? If it works, yes, it works. But piss poorly. So poor that it installs a false sense of security in you and you'll end up with something 100% useless when it comes time for you to use it. They have really, really fudged their numbers, but I'll get to that in a moment. How it works. Okay, first of all, listen everyone, there is no such thing as a salt water battery. All batteries have an anode and a cathode. The most basic of these are two different types of metal, metals. It's like putting a penny and a nickel and a lemon to power a digital clock. It's called a lemon battery, but it's not a lemon battery. It's a copper nickel battery. The lemon is just the electrolyte. Same thing with the salt water battery from these guys. It is really a magnesium air battery. The magnesium is the anode. The salt water is the electrolyte. 
and they have a nice membrane on the backside that actually uses air as the cathode and supplies the oxygen that oxidizes the magnesium. In other words, it makes the magnesium go away. These are not new things. These were actually used in the 1940s to power torpedoes, okay? So magnesium air batteries or magnesium and some other metal batteries, they go back a long ways, and there's lots of documentation on them, but you're not going to power the world with them. Okay, all batteries work the same way. One side gives up electrons, and you get your electrical flow, and the other side gives up ions. Ions are pieces of the metal anode, so it's literally losing metal, and that metal is going to the cathode or into solution, and eventually it will be all gone, and thus your battery is dead. That's what I'm saying. The magnesium is going to go away. Quick side note, there's two types of batteries, primary and secondary. Primary batteries are like Duracell batteries. You use once, throw away, can't recharge them. I don't care what you say, you can't recharge them. And then there are secondary batteries like lead acid or nickel metal hydride batteries. These are batteries that you recharge. So in this case, what you have is you have a magnesium air primary battery, one that can't be recharged, recharging a nickel metal hydride rechargeable battery, a battery that charges a battery. That's what it is in its essence. The problems. First of all, you keep on getting, you don't keep on getting energy as long as you keep on pouring in salt water. Like I said, the magnesium anode is consumed. It's eaten up. So this unit only recharges the battery 15 times and then it's dead. Throw it in the trash dead. If you read the fine print on the website, Charging a completely dead battery requires about five hours and will reduce the number of charges available in the battery charger. Ah, great, wonderful, the fine print. So it's only good for 15 charges if the batteries are not fully drained. Well, what's it good for now? Probably seven charges. Now let's look at the batteries, the AA nickel metal hydride batteries they are selling you. These are called the green wave battery. You know what they say when someone says it's, it's green. Grab onto your wallet because they want the green that's in your wallet. In this case, they're giving you a piss poor nickel metal hydride battery. It's a 1400 milliamp hour battery and the wonderful great Sanyo end loop batteries that everyone loves that I have on solar, solar1234.com are about 2200 milliamp hours. Uh, side note, don't go above 2200 milliamp hour nickel, double A nickel metal double A nickel metal hydride batteries. Say that three times quick. Don't play the numbers game. You'll get about 1800 charges out of a new 2200 milliamp end loop battery. And if you get a 2900 nickel metal hydride battery, uh, from someone else with a different name on it, you might get 50 charges out of it. So you want 1,800 of 2,200, or do you want 50 of 2,900? You do the math. So back to the magnesium, air, salt, water, electrolyte battery. So you get 15 charges of six 1,400, nickel, 1400 milliamp hour nickel metal hydride batteries. 
only if they're not fully discharged and the batteries have less than 75, these batteries have less than 75% of the energy of a real nickel metal hydride battery. All of this for a little salt water, or as I say, any emergency, urine will work. <laughs> Here, honey, will you fill this for me, please? Oh, uh, yes. They say it has an indefinite shelf life. Well, with a magnesium, air, salt water, electrolyte battery, it does have an indefinite shelf life. But those nickel metal hydride batteries do not have an indefinite shelf life. Leave this whole thing on the shelf for 10 years and you'll go to use it and you'll find your nickel metal hydride batteries are dead, dead, dead. They won't take a charge and you'll be sitting in the kitchen at the table with a candle burning, pouring salt water into into the battery. And you'll be telling your wife, honestly, honey, they said that it had an infinite shelf life. You see what I mean by a false sense of security? That is the downfall of all these gadgets, a false sense of security. You think you have something when you have nothing. And before you ask, no, you can't replace the magnesium, get more life from it. Like I said before, it's a piss-poor unit. Why would you want to add more fuel to a substandard gadget piece of trash? Plus, the magnesium usually is not just magnesium. It's a special alloy with other metals to make it much more reactive. It'll have trace metals in it. It's usually just not straight magnesium. I have dealt with air batteries before. I've used zinc air, aluminum air, and yes, magnesium air batteries. And they just aren't straight metals. They are alloys. And be, oh, before you think you found a way to make a much bigger one and power your house with it, uh-uh. It takes a great deal of electrical energy to make magnesium at very high temperatures by electrolysis. So that's the energy you are going to get back, is you gain back the energy it took to make the magnesium. You're not going to power the world with it, and magnesium's not pulled out of the ground in raw form. So your third question, is it worth having in a preparedness energy toolkit? Hell no. Hell no. I don't know how many, many times I can say that. Stay away from the gadgets. Stay away from the crank-up chargers that take 16 hours of cranking to charge your iPhone. Stay away from the solar chargers that won't work when there is no sunshine. And use what works now. Always will work now and that you have a proven track record with. At the Self-Reliance Expo, I give a presentation about unlimited power in a disaster. And I show you how a regular car and about $90 in extra gasoline and gas containers will give you 10 years, that's years of talk time on your iPhone. What do you really, really want with a gadget of salt water that will recharge substandard batteries less than 15 times? Your cell phone and your AA battery charger is sitting in your driveway right now. If you really want to have an unlimited source of AA batteries, listen to my podcast I did with Jack about how to power your house from your car. In this podcast, I cover AA and AAA recharging in that show perfectly, in explicit detail. 
You can listen to this show with one tap on your smartphone or your computer right now at www.solar1234.com. Again, it's called How to Power Your House from Your Car. Do you guys know how you rotate your food, eat what you store, store what you eat? You should be doing the same thing with your AA batteries and other batteries. You charge them up, you use them around the house and flashlights, remote controls, the kids' toys. In fact, let the kids recharge all of the batteries in the house. That's their duty. And then when it comes time for a disaster, you know, you will know recharging down cold. And you'll already have a bunch of batteries around the house ready to use. Most of them pretty much 100% charged up and ready to go. And if you listened, just for another example, if you listened to my battery show I did with Jack, which is at battery1234.com, and you had a Group 27 deep cycle marine battery from Walmart charged up and ready to go, and you wanted to recharge AA batteries with it, it would charge over 250 AA batteries. And you can recharge that battery from your, you can recharge that marine battery from your car with jumper, jumper cables in just a few hours, okay? And that's 250 AA batteries that are 100% dead, not partially dead. This is the way to go. As always, thank you guys for calling into the expert panel. I'm Steve Harris, and don't forget, I got some new rocket stoves and wood gas stoves at rocketstove1234.com, and as always, all of my stuff I have done with Jack is at solar1234.com. See ya. Goodbye. It's it's great when somebody just doesn't tell you that something's not worth your money and sucks, but they slice it and dice it more ways than a Ronco knife could ever do, and do it with science to the point where you're just like, I will never fall for any marketing around that piece of crap ever, so thanks, Steve, for that. I do have another question for Steve today, so I'm going to go ahead and cue that one up, and then we'll come back, and I'll take a couple for myself. Hey, Jack. This is Chip from northern Nevada, uh, Metaforge on the board. Good question for you. Um, in assessing my preps lately, uh, I've found that I'm pretty well along the way on food, and uh, I'm working on water and energy. And specifically with energy, I had a question. Um, how much would you advise as far as propane storage for kind of the average suburban person? Uh, the background is, you know, obviously um, not somebody who's rural who can have a big old tank of propane and uh, obviously not somebody who's in an apartment either that can't store anything. So um, somebody who's on, uh, you know, natural gas, from the grid normally, um, but in a in an emergency situation when that fails, um, in order to cook long-term food preps and uh, whatnot, boil water. Uh, how many of those kind of you know um, blue rhino kind of tanks of propane would you advise for a storage capability? Uh, or, and or I guess. Also, would you advise the, the smaller ones, kind of the camp stove kind of deal, um, or in addition or in lieu of? Uh, interested in your thoughts. Thanks. Bye. 
Okay, let's start out with a reality, because I'm going to kind of answer this question two ways, for people like yourself that have natural gas and for people that don't have natural gas. And I'm going to bring up some important things about those of us with natural gas stoves that think our stove will work if the grid power's down, because it might not because of the safety police. So this is going to be an interesting one to dissect. Let's start out with people like yourself. I think you need to base your, your propane storage requirements based on what you would do uh, with things that you can't do with natural gas. So cooking on the grill or something like that or powering a generator or something like that. The last utility that will fail, the very last utility that will ever fail for you is natural gas. I have seen the, the, uh, the phones down, the electricity down, uh, completely all kinds of stuff screwed up. I've seen places where when the electricity's down, if it's down citywide due to pumping stations and things like that, water pressure you can lose. I've seen sewers backed up, and the frickin' gas still flows. It's under natural pressure the way it's designed. Steve Harris covered this on a show in the past where he asked the guys that actually run the gas plants and things like that, how bad would things have to be before the gas stopped flowing? And they said, very Very bad. About the only way you can reasonably expect a gas outage in your area is if some fool with a backhoe cuts in half a, a, a gas main bringing gas to your house. And I've even in my days of underground construction seen a four-inch hole punched in the side of a gas main. It was my drill that did it because they didn't locate it right. And the gas, even though it was venting out, was still being delivered. And the gas people came and they put a bypass line in it and, and pinched it off until they could repair it properly and kept service up. Um, had that been a water line, it would have taken a lot more work to get it back up. Uh, probably been a lot less likely to kill me, but it would have been much harder to repair. So I think if you have natural gas, it should be the utility that you believe is most likely to last past the zombies. The zombies will be coming through your yard and your gas will still be coming into your house in 99.9% of instances. So if you have natural gas, you should base your propane storage on what you would do with it that you can't all do with your natural gas. Okay. Now, I said I would bring up something really important for those of us on natural gas that understand this and think, well, my stove will work just fine. It might not. Newer gas ranges have a fail-safe that basically shut off the gas if there's no power to the stove. They don't let the gas flow. You can't light it, it won't work. Not all of them, but in some new stoves, you can't just, okay, you know, they got an electric igniter, you turn it to light, and it click, 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 and it comes on, right? If you're wondering whether your stove does this or not, there's a real quick way to find out. Unplug the electric part of your stove, the little 110 outlet, Go to your burner and try to light it with a uh, with a little lighter and see if it lights. If it doesn't, you know you need to make sure that if you're going to rely on that stove, you do something like battery backup or an inverter, you know, just a cheap battery inverter that hooks up to your car, like Stephen Harris teaches. And that could be a very important little piece of information to have right there. And those stoves don't use a lot of energy in a small battery with a small in inverter that you only use when you turn the stove on would be all you would need to keep on hand for that need. But it would be a good thing to know that you might need that. Just saying. Um, so that's that's an issue there. Now, 
how do we look at pro? I, I can tell you how I look at propane. I have a hundred gallon tank that runs my stove, my range. It's the only thing in the house that runs on propane, and I keep five uh, propane tanks. And I probably should get more. And uh, I probably should put in a bigger reserve tank, and I should probably plumb it to a place where I can hook my gas stove up to it, so I don't have to use those little ones anymore. I like the the, the you know the blue rhino size cans. You know you're talking about. Um, I do a lot of beer brewing, and I have a burner that I can hook it up to. It's very convenient when I'm you know doing scalding water for chickens to just be able to stick a big pot on top of a propane burner. I use propane uh, grill. And, uh, you know, that's kind of like I'd say four to five of those things minimum uh, for everybody. But I wouldn't really be afraid that your, you know, stuff's going to fail. And it's it's one of those things you can easily phase into. You can, you know, they have the exchanges, but you can also just buy them. Um, now, when you get them filled, find like a tractor supply or a U-Haul or a propane company where you go and they fill it and they charge you for what they put in because at the exchanges, they never fill them all the way. But I'll tell you that generally it seems like, and I'm not sure why, it's cheaper even with a little bit less in it to buy a pre-filled one from like one of those exchanges than it is to go buy one and then take it and get it filled. And it's, it's a few bucks, but a few bucks is a few bucks. But either way, you can add like one every other month until you have enough to feel comfortable. But if you have natural gas, my big takeaway from here is you could have water out, sewer backing up, electricity off, phone not working, and your natural gas 99% of the time is still going to work because the system runs on pressure from the earth. And because, and the, you know, it's just pre, the, these wells that are tapped and The way this system works is not like your conventional on-grid systems. And uh, there's my security system going off in the background, uh, Max and Charlie. Anyway, good question, but I'm going to say at least five cans for everybody in the suburbs, as long as you have something that uses it. If you don't have a gas grill and you don't have little like a little buddy heater system for backup heat or something like that, you don't have anything that uses propane, you're pretty much storing a barter item. I can't see not having a gas grill. I can't see not having a you know a, a dedicated gas burner like for frying turkeys or, or stuff like that, that type of thing, or boiling crawfish or whatever it is you do with yours. Primarily, I make beer and scald chickens with mine. Uh, I can't see not having those two things. So I can't see not having the propane to, to kind of go along with them. If you have a propane grill and you like your propane grill and you like to cook on your propane grill all the time and you realize it's a great asset if the power is out so you can use it and you have one propane tank, you're absolutely wrong. One tank is not good. And I'm going to tell you why. Let's say no zombies come, no grid goes down, no problems. You have friends over and you, they come over, you're going to cook steaks and the grill goes flicker, 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 It sucks. Don't let that happen. Have at least a minimum of two tanks and always keep one reserved, one filled. But four, kind of the floor for me. And like I said, I've got five of them plus a 100-gallon tank, and I'm probably going to, just from this question alone, it's kind of prompt me, yeah, I've been meaning to get a couple more of them. Uh, just saying. We will probably next year have like a much larger tank installed. The issue is it's right outside our house, And it's kind of tucked into an area that I really like it in. And I don't know really where I'd put one of those, like a 500-gallon one, uh, where it would be not really intrusive. But I've got some ideas, and we'll see about that. Good question. Let's take another call. 
Hey, Jack, how are you? It's John from New Hampshire. I'm uh, giving a shout-out here to fellow TSP members in New Hampshire. I'm looking for some land to grow some ducks, Joel Salton style, for a restaurant up here. I have a good opportunity, and I can't find any land. I've been banging my head against the wall for a little while, and uh, I don't know, man. Maybe there's some resources out there that you know where I can find some land up here to rent, possibly purchase. Uh, I'll do what I can. This is the step in my farm that I need, and uh, you know, I'm just looking for that hand up, basically, right now. I've had a few leads, and they've fallen through, and uh, I don't know, man. I'm looking for some land here. i got to raise 150 ducks in uh, three weeks, so catapult my career. <laughs> Thanks a lot, man. I'll see you soon. Bye-bye. I played this call because maybe someone will say, I'm in New Hampshire, and uh, I would lease some land to John. I think this is John D., who's going to be at my workshop in October. Uh, I'm not sure. But I think that's who this is, because I know John raises ducks, and uh, I know that uh, John lives in New Hampshire, and it sounds like John. Something is that John. So here's what I'll say. If anybody has some land, and I think he's in southern New Hampshire, and would be interested in leasing some land so that this guy could raise some ducks, you know, post in the comment section. John, keep an eye on the comment section, and maybe you guys can link up. Do this for me, though, folks. When you have things like this, use the regional boards in the forum and post what you're interested in. And I would say use Craigslist, too. I mean, put, you know, I'm looking for land to, 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 to lease to raise ducks on, and you might find some folks out there, but definitely, um, I'd like to see more stuff like that. There's probably someone in New Hampshire that listens to this show that's like, well, I got a lot of space over there and a pond and everything, and I kind of like to have the fertility of the ducks here, and he'll bring them in and raise them, and I can get some money, and well, maybe I can have him, instead of doing 150, do 170, and I can keep 20 of them permanently or for peaking-ing. Right? Is that a word? Making peaking duck peakinging? Whatever you want to call it, roasting. Um, so, hey, John, uh, hopefully this will get you someone reaching out to you to lease you some land. Let's take another call. And if it is you, John D., I look forward to seeing you next month. Hey, Jack, this is Steve from Virginia. I uh, just heard your podcast about uh, Perma Ethos concept. Um, kind of enjoying it and uh, really liking the concept. I do have a question in that. Um, isn't this a lot like a homeowners association, just kind of spun towards a libertarian mindset? Um, just wondering on your thoughts on that. Um, thank you very much. Love what you do. Thank you, sir. Bye. Well, once again, Perma Ethos is my concept for a libertarian-style eco-village with long-term leaseholders and a board of ownership that are the investors that actually fund the thing to get it up off the ground. And... Um, I don't want to turn TSP into an infomercial for it, but this is a question that's germane to the audience, and, uh, and my stance on HOAs is pretty much they suck, and I do believe that they do, and it's a valid question. Now, I will say that I have an hour and 45 minutes of questions sitting at permaethos.com in the most recent post over there where I cover a lot of things that would be deeply answering this type of concern, so I'm going to give the very abbreviated answer to it here. The very abbreviated answer is an HOA has board of people that decide what other people get to do and approve whether or not other people can do things or not. And when they don't like something, they create a new rule that says you can't do that. Permaethos would have a set of guidelines going in that are a contract 
between everybody involved, between the company, the investors, the leasers, and everybody involved, that would spell out everything right from day one. This makes it very voluntarist. In other words, you come into it knowing all the rules. So you can decide if it's the right place for you or not. When somebody wants to make a new rule, here's the answer. No. No. Well, what if we really think we need this rule? Do 100% of the people entered into contract agree with you? And we're only making the rule because some new person might come in and it might apply to them. So is, is every single person who signed the contract is either a leasee or an owner okay with the new rule? Okay? The answer is no, then no. That's how it's different. You don't get to tell other people what to do when you say, well, he's over there and he's, I, we don't care what, is he hurting you? No. Is he violating the original contract? No. Then you have to shut up and not worry about John. John is not your concern. But I don't like, I don't care. That's how it's different from an HOA. There's no one that can come in and say, you can't put up a fence. There's no one that can come in and say, your chicken coop doesn't look right. There's no one that can come in and say, you can't do this or you can't do that unless, as we put together the community and we think about how everybody's going to live together, we have this original set of restrictions, which will be very, very mild. And the primary contract will say what others cannot do to you versus what you must do to comply with what they want. So it's it's the antithesis of uh, a... An HOA. It's the opposite of an HOA. An HOA tells you what you have to do. A property ownership agreement, I guess is what we would call it, a contract, a, a community covenant, spells out what you, all the things that are necessary right from the beginning. And if you go, well, I don't like that, then don't come here. Right? But you know no one's going to change it on you. There's no board to change it. And what happens with the community as far as a board, you have a, an elected board in the community that doesn't make rules. What they do is go, this is how much money we have this month, right? This is how much money we have for improvements to the community this month. And we talk to the community and say, well, what does everybody want to do? People make recommendations. Everybody looks at it. Everybody votes and says, we want to build a, a, a community building over here that we can uh, put storage lockers in and, and residents can lease a locker at cost. Uh, to run that facility, and that way people can have additional storage and know things are secure, especially seasonal residents and things like that. And, and the, you know that motion passes. It comes to the board, bo the board, board of ownership. We look at it and go, that makes financial sense to us. That's what they want, but done, right? The only time the board is going to make a decision is let's say that the community is in conflict, and the community, like half of the people want that building and half of the people want uh, to put in a building for a school. Well, then we'll look at it fiscally. And we'll make a fiscal decision, and that storage locker building won't go away if we decide on the school, and the school won't go away if we decide on the storage locker building. It'll just be which one comes first. And that means that the people that are like, I wanted that, will get it next month. right? And we'll let the community direct the spending. So the community doesn't get the money, they get control of the money. There's no HOA in the world anything like Permaethos. Again, if you want to know more about Permaethos as a concept, I'm looking for investors and potential leaseholders on 99-year guaranteed renewable leases with the lowest entry point I can make it and make the project function. Uh, you can learn more at permaethos.com. There'll be a link in today's show notes. Next caller, please. 
Hey, Jack, Eric from Long Island. I want to send a big thank you to Dorothy. My wife had those stick figure stickers in the back window of the car. I told the story about a stranger approaching our daughter with that information to coax her away, and those stickers were off the car before we left the restaurant parking lot. Sometimes it's all about perspective. Thank you, Dorothy. Have a good one. Well, I want you to know that when I scanned your call, sir, that the first thing I did was go get Dorothy out of her office, put her right in my chair, and said, hit play and listen to this, and it made her day. And then we talked about it a little bit, and uh, you know, she kind of even shivered a bit. She's scary that people do that. And I said, well, you don't have to worry about it for this one group. For those that didn't hear the show where I talked about this, what we're really talking about is not just the little silhouettes, like there's a little girl, a little boy, and mommy and daddy, and a puppy and a kitty that you see people put on their, their soccer mom mobiles, as I call them all. All the time, but the really bad ones are the ones that have names. So the little boy is Billy, right? And the little little girl is Tammy, and the little the little boy is you know the the mom is Mary, and the doggy is Fido, right? And what I, when I pointed out how stupid that was, Dorothy like it went right inside her. It was one of those things I didn't have to explain at all. She's like, that is the dumbest thing ever, and she like noticed it but never really thought about it. And she's like, the next time we're at a soccer game for our niece or something like that, and I see somebody with that, I'm going to walk up to to the mom and go. Um, hi, Tammy. Uh, your brother Billy got hurt playing soccer, and your mom Mary sent me over to get you and take you to the hospital. And she said we should go by the house and pick a few things up and make sure we feed Fido before we go there. Well, Dorothy's proof that what one person says matters. When I told her about this, she goes, what well, was your thing? I said, no, it wasn't my thing. My thing was it was dumb. You're the one that had the idea to put it into that context to how freaking dangerous it is so kudos to my wife Dorothy and sir kudos to your wife for immediately recognizing that and not trying to defend it and taking that down I told you we talk about a kind of sticker you shouldn't have on your vehicle there it is I think that less children are at risk just because we've talked about this on TSP and it's something I'll continue to mention once in a while because it's an extensive extensive security risk to broadcast the first names of your family members and pets. Um, I don't even like the stickers that give the quantity. It's too much information. I look at it, I know you got daddy, I know you got mommy, I know you got two girls, you got a boy, you got a dog and a cat. Um, if I am some kind of pervert or sick, twisted jerk, um, I can shadow you and learn all the rest of the information. So I don't even like the base ones, but the ones with the names are just plain stupid. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. It's Melissa from Illinois. I had a question for Chef Keith Snow about chard. We grew chard in our garden this year, and it is doing very, very well. And I've tried it, uh, that kind of sauteed. I've tried it roast in the oven. We actually used the stems in a pickled okra recipe, and, and that turned out great. But I'm not sure what else to do with it. Um, I didn't like it sauteed. I didn't like it roasted. My husband didn't either. So I didn't know if there are any other um, tricks or recipes that that you, you could use chard in. Thanks a lot, and thanks for the show. Bye. Okay, that's a, that's a great one because I've really enjoyed Swiss chard stir-fried a lot, and uh, I'm not really sure how to answer that one because I like chard in a lot of different ways, just raw and salads of baby leaves chopped up with other leaves and things like that. So uh, at the risk of making everybody hungry, Chef Keith, what do you say on Swiss chard? 
Hey, it's Keith Snow with the expert panel. I wanted to answer Melissa in Illinois' question about Swiss chard. Now, uh, congratulations, Melissa, on your uh, wonderful harvest and crop of Swiss chard. That's definitely one of my favorite vegetables. I think uh, the greens are still underestimated in um, most areas of the country. Um, down in the south where we used to live, uh, we did a lot more with greens. And uh, honestly, growing up in the northeast, greens were just, they didn't exist. Nobody had greens. Nobody cooked with greens. And I'm finding the same thing out here in Montana. Um, you, you see them a little bit, but not uh, not very common. So the fact that you're growing them there, I think you said um, Illinois, that's a pretty good climate to grow greens in, I would imagine. And the cool thing about greens is you can definitely get two crops a year. And uh, that's what we used to do. So cooking with these things. Now, you mentioned a few different ways that you've cooked with them. I'll just go over some of my favorite ways to use uh, Swiss chard, and then um, you can, you know, take some ideas from that. First of all, pasta. Now, I think you mentioned sautéed. Now, I absolutely love a pasta dish, and uh, you can change this thing up, you know, a little bit with the seasons, but it, it kind of goes like this, and hopefully uh, you guys have eaten before you hear this because it's going to make me hungry, maybe you too. Now, uh, get some good bacon. And you have to really watch bacon these days. I found that uh, the stuff in the store has really kind of gone downhill. A lot of times I'll buy um, an applewood thick-cut smoked bacon from um, a place like Whole Foods. I don't have that out here in, in Montana. But the point is get yourself some good bacon. And um, even nowadays some of the uncured bacons are pretty good. Now they're they're uncured and they're not using um, – you know, chemicals to cure them, but they're certainly using uh, celery juice, which, you know, contains the same type of chemicals, a little more natural. So just be aware of that. Uncured is eh, sort of uncured. So once you have good bacon, you want to dice it up into what the French call lardon, which is bigger pieces. So cut it up into maybe, I don't know, quarter inch wide um, chunks. And then you're going to render that out in a pan or a, a pot is even better. Something with sides on it. You'll need that for later on when we add pasta to it. So once you've got your bacon rendered out and you'll know that you're doing it properly when it, it cooks, you know, on the slower side, starts to get crispy, take a slotted spoon. And uh, once it's good and crisp, you'll remove and not burnt, but, you know, crisp, remove it with a slotted spoon onto some paper towels to drain. And now you've got bacon fat basically in your pot, which is an awesome thing to have, by the way. Um, love having some bacon fat on my counter to cook with. So now that you've got your bacon fat, you're going to then go in with a red onion, like a small red onion that's finely minced. Throw the whole thing in, and you're going to start sautéing. Your heat at this point should be you know, medium-high. So start to sauté the onion and... Your house is going to be incredibly smelling at this point with bacon and now some red onions going in there. And then you're going to throw in four cloves of garlic. And this is a lot of garlic, but it's going to be awesome. It's going to make your dish taste really great. So four cloves of minced garlic are going to go in there. And then what you're going to have is, particularly now that we're, you know, mid-September, get yourself 
some squash, like maybe a butternut squash. Maybe you grew one in the garden in the spring or maybe you had one from the winter and they do last for months and months. So um, get a squash, have it peeled and diced up on the smaller side. You know, you got to imagine you're going to be putting these chunks of squash into your mouth because they're not going to completely break down. You don't want huge pieces. So something maybe three-eighths of an inch by three-eighths of an inch. Throw the squash into the mix and start to saute it. And you have to watch the ingredients now because you've got um, onions and garlic, which can burn. And if you burn them, you're you're kind of you're screwed. You're going to have to start over. So watch your heat. And it all depends on if you have a good pot or not. But you're cooking these ingredients. You've got uh, the fat, onions, garlic, some squash in there. And you'll start to saute the squash. And if it's small enough, and this is another key, if you have like an inch and a half inch, inch and a half dice, it's going to take forever to cook and you may, may not have it cooked. But if you have these small little pieces, they will cook. So let this mixture saute for a minute. And then you're going to throw in one cup of diced tomato. Throw the diced tomato in there. And that's got a lot of liquid in it as well. And you know, it may spit at you because you've got fat and you're putting in basically water. So just be careful. Stir that. That's another reason we want a pot with sides. Stir that around. And then you're going to take your Swiss chard. Now, I love the stems. You had mentioned stems. A lot of people will kind of just completely cut the stems out. And the, the beautiful thing about chard, is particularly if you have rainbow chard, all those great colors. So I like the stems. But you have to be careful to wash this stuff. It grows in some sandy soil. When the rain hits the dirt, it splashes mud and stuff all over these this chard. This is where a lot of people go wrong with greens and they think, ah, greens are gross. They don't wash them very well and then you, they get grit in their teeth and stuff like that. So make sure that you're washing them very well in um, several batches of cold water. Chop them up and start adding your um, Swiss chard to the mix here. Now remember, this stuff will cooked down by like 85%. So if you've got a big old pile of it, in the end, you don't have a big pile of it. It cooks way, way down. And it needs that long cook time um, in this application. So get it in there and start to cook it. And, and you're going to want to saute this whole mixture in there with the greens, you know, for probably three or four minutes. So you've got the onions, garlic, bacon fat. You've got the butternut squash, tomato. Now you've thrown your greens in there. So you're going to just want to mix those around for three or four minutes. And then you're going to take some dry white wine, something like Chablis. You don't want a sweet wine. Take a little bit of dry white wine. After about five minutes of cooking the chard, put about a quarter cup of wine in there. It's going to make a lot of noise. And then you'll stir that around for a minute. Turn the heat way, way down. Cover it and let it cook for about 20 minutes. In the meantime, your favorite pasta. And for this, I'd probably go with something like linguine, maybe even fettuccine. Uh, another thing that might work would be um, some bow ties. I call them farfalle. Bow ties would be great here as well. And if you can get pasta that's whole wheat, I like the taste of it. But it's not uh, not the end of the world if you can't. Just avoid the super cheap store brands because those don't taste very good in my opinion. So once um, about 20 minutes or so goes by, you'll uncover it, and you need to have this pasta pre-cooked. So just cook the pasta 
and then make sure you rinse it really well so it doesn't stick together. So now you've got al dente pasta. Don't overcook the pasta because if it's too far gone coming out of the hot water, when you add it back into this pot, it's going to you know fall apart on you. You don't want that. Make sure it's al dente, which means to the tooth. should be a little bit firm. Um, take your pasta, throw it into the mixture here, and then what I like to do is take two tablespoons of organic heavy cream. Pour two tablespoons of organic heavy cream and a good um, grating of Pecorino Romano, which is a sheep's milk cheese. Look for a brand called Locatelli. It has a brown and white sort of um, paper on the end of it. Locatelli. Great stuff. So you grate some of that in there. Make sure you've seasoned this along the way with kosher salt and pepper. You don't want to wait to the end to season it. So you've seasoned it up a bit. Now that you've thrown in, um, you could probably put in a whole pound of pasta um, if you have enough kind of base ingredients. And remember, that's a lot of weight of pasta. And if you don't re-season at this point, you'll have a bland dish. So put the pasta in, re-season again. And um, now you're going to start tossing the cream and the cheese with all these ingredients. Use tongs at this point. Try to get everything very well incorporated. And then um, once the pasta has you know, become hot and it's going to take a few minutes for it to, to heat up, but there should be a good bit of um, liquid in that pan. You just put some cream in there. That's going to heat up. So toss the coat and it's not going to be Alfredo like a lot of people might think, Oh man, it was going good until he put the cream in there. There's not enough cream to make it uh, Alfredo like. So it's not going to be any sticky, you know, Johnny Carino stuff. This is going to, you'll still see all the squash and the chard and little bits of tomato in there. Now what you want to do is toss that bacon on top, mix it all together and then plate it up and then put a good bit of grated cheese again, but right on top. Now that is probably one of my favorite ways and I love it in the fall. This is a dish I'll definitely make three or four times before Christmas for my own family. And uh, I love using those, you know, hard winter squashes in there. And um, even kale goes great with this dish, too. So that is one great way to use Swiss chard. Next, um, you mentioned sautéing it. So same process. Let's do a little bit of onions, one clove of garlic, extra virgin olive oil in this case. Chop it up very finely and sauté it about 25 minutes, stirring it pretty often, season it with salt and pepper. Now you've got some really intense flavored chard, and that garlic and onions are pretty key there. Now you can take this mixture and make quiche. Now quiche is a throwback to the 70s. Not a lot of people make quiche, but um, this audience is loaded with homesteaders and people that have chickens. If you've got chickens, man, you've got to bring quiche back onto your menu. So you make some quiche. And use uh, use your Swiss chard in there. You can even put some um, white, like sharp cheddar cheese, which goes great in there. And the flavors of, you know, the eggs and the cheese with the little slight bitter bite of the chard, to me, it's incredible. You have to have enough chard in there to make it um, taste great. And you don't need to. I know there's a lot of paleo folks out there. You don't need to use a crust to make quiche. You can certainly, and we do it all the time, we make crustless quiche. Take a little butter, rub um, a pie plate really well. In goes your fillings. Pour the eggs on top. It'll kind of settle all around there. Your fillings meaning your cooked chard, your cheese, and your whipped eggs. 
that are seasoned, make sure you season them with salt and pepper. A little um, tablespoon of heavy cream in there goes well too. Um, pour that all on top of that. Bake it until it's done, and you don't you never even miss the crust. And uh, that's what we do quite a bit. So that would be another way to use it. What about soup? Now, we make a harvest vegetable soup, and again, this is a great time of year when you're starting to get um, an abundance of tomatoes. Folks still have green beans, but a harvest soup where you take kale, I mean, uh, your chard, and throw it into the soup. Right when the soup is about to, you know, you'll cover it and simmer it for 40 minutes or so. Throw in a bunch of kale and chop it up pretty finely. Remember, you're going to be using a spoon if you've got big, long pieces Sure, it'll shrink a bit, but it might be hard to get into your mouth. So keep that in, in mind when you're um, cutting it up. But there's nothing better than um, of soup with tomatoes and beans and potatoes and and uh, your chard in there, giving it a little um, bitter flavor, which is wonderful. So, and you can put like kidney beans in there. So a soup that's rich with vegetables and has this. I do it all the time with kale. We don't actually. Very rarely find good chard, and we're not growing a garden this year, which really stinks, but uh, soup is great. Now, another dish that I'll mention, uh, I actually had lunch with uh, Jack up in Missoula a couple months back, and I ordered a chard salad. And what they did was, this was completely raw chard. Now, folks think, oh, you can't eat it raw. You can. It's harder to digest. A lot of times I'll put greens like kale or spinach, things like that, in my morning smoothie in the Vitamix. So I usually will have a green smoothie in the morning, and uh, that stuff is completely raw, and it doesn't bother my stomach one bit. The Vitamix breaks it down pretty well. But um, I even had it in, in a salad, and what it was was pretty interesting was um, cut up Swiss chard, and then there was a feta cheese vinaigrette, very simple. It's like a mustard vinaigrette, shallots garlic, Dijon mustard, red wine vinegar, olive oil. At the end, some good feta cheese was tossed into this vinaigrette. And then the salad itself was just the Swiss chard, uh, sliced red onions. I think it had a few nuts in it. And then this um, feta cheese vinaigrette on top. And it also had cooked green lentils. Now, to me, being being a chef, being somebody who's traveled uh, many times to France and, and got kind of deep into the culinary culture over there with my stove uh, manufacturer that uh, is over in Burgundy and having having eaten a lot in Burgundy and went to things like the Bocuse d'Or, which is the World Culinary Olympics over in Lyon. Um, the lentil is something that the French love and the Americans mostly ignore it. Now, lentils are terrific um, as a salad ingredient. And this is what this restaurant had up in Missoula was um, cooked green lentils tossed in this salad. Charred onions, nuts, lentils, feta cheese vinaigrette, awesome. So give that a shot. And uh, I hope that this answered your question and that you're going to cook up some good chard and definitely grow some for the fall. You'll probably have enough time to put in a, a new crop for the fall. So uh, that's it on chard. And as always, I'd like to thank all of you TS peers for um, tuning in to Harvest Eating Podcast. Lots and lots of you are listening. Thank you so much. And uh, while I'm on the subject, I wanted to mention the spices that Jack talks about. We have a master pack of our spices, 
It's, um, it contains seven cans. So all of our um, best selling spice combinations in one box. And now we're offering a special till I think the second week of September. If you buy two of those, that would give you enough to give away for Christmas. You get a free bottle of our olive oil. So keep that in mind, folks. Two master packs. And there's nothing special that you need to do. Just order two at one time. And when that comes through, we will add a um, free bottle of our Thoughtful Harvest Extra Virgin Olive Oil. That's a $25 gift. So keep that in mind. And thank you all for your support. And uh, keep calling in those questions. So great answer from Keith. Now, he also has an answer for us. The person asked about seafood. And in my screening of the calls, I did not find the call, but I don't think we need the call to provide the answer. And since Keith has prepared an answer for this this question about seafood and storage and freezing fish, uh, I'm going to go ahead and play that. So caller, um, because you emailed Keith, he knew even though I didn't, and he prepared you an answer. So I'm sorry we're not playing your call. But I got the next best thing, an answer for you. So Chef Keith on freezing fresh seafood. What do you say, bro? Hey, this is Chef Keith Snow from the Expert Panel. I wanted to answer a question from a dude named Jason. Now, Jason um, is lucky enough to have access to a bunch of fish from a commercial commercial fisherman. He's wondering the best way to freeze it. Now, this can, um, this can be a complicated answer, but I'm going to give you sort of a quick one. You'll see folks recommending... Um, taking fish and I'm assuming that your fish is going to be properly cleaned and broken down. So, um, scaled, rinsed off, you know, gutted probably in this case, you, you're probably looking at your question here. Let's just see if, um, yeah, you're, you're dealing with salmon. Now salmon steaks or fillets are, are going to be, um, perfect to freeze. I prefer fillets over steaks, and what that simply means is there's no uh, backbone in there. So you don't have a horseshoe-shaped piece of fish with a backbone in there and a bunch of skin. You've um, you've filleted it, and uh, that's how I like it. So if it's it doesn't really matter though. If it's filleted up, um, what you want to do is make sure you debone it, and uh, for that I keep a very clean pair of needle nose pliers. Um, there are special tweezers that fishmongers will use to remove bones. Um, but I just keep some needle nose pliers. So with very clean hands, you'll want to feel where the, the bones lie and make sure you remove those bones and including all the pin bones. Salmon bones are no fun to get in your throat. So remove all those bones and it's your choice whether you're going to skin these, um, fillets or not. But once you get ready to do it, you'll see, you'll see advice online where people say to, dip it in water and then put it in the freezer and let that freeze and take it out and dip it in water and put it back in until you have a quarter inch layer of ice around the fish, you know, and that definitely does work, but I don't know many people who have the time to be doing that going in and out and in and out with, um, water to put a, you know, an ice coating on your fish. So, um, the other thing you'll see is people talking about dipping it in exorbic acid, which is vitamin C, you know, to treat it and, and this kind of thing. So my advice would be to get some butcher paper. If you're going to be doing a lot of freezing, folks, good quality butcher paper, which you can get at some of the club stores. You certainly can get it online. Um, or if there's a butcher nearby, you may be able to just buy a roll from them. That's a great thing to have. Um, so once you have butcher paper, one side of it is waxy. 
And that's the side you want touching your fish. So cut a good square of the uh, butcher paper. And when you have it laying in front of you, you want one of the, the points of the square. So if you've got a square-shaped uh, piece of butcher paper, you want to place the fish. So you want to have one of the points of the corner facing your chest, and you'll put the piece of fish right on there. The first pointy flap will go over, and then you kind of do the sides, and you roll it up, and it makes it a tighter package. But you can, if you're going to do it a really long time, um, I suggest, you know, a decent you know, you want to go over that fish a few times if you're going to put this away for six months. So make sure you're not just using a teeny little piece of the butcher paper. But roll it in the butcher paper, and then I like to wrap it in um, plastic wrap before I put it away. And sometimes if I'm going to freeze it a long time, I'll even put a layer of foil over top of the plastic wrap. So you've got butcher paper, plastic wrap, and usually you a little bit of masking tape will close the butcher paper once you've got it all folded up. Then you can wrap it in your good quality um, plastic wrap. And a lot of times I'll get one of those plastic wrap rolls, the big one with the you know sort of professional cutter. You can get that at the club stores. It's a lot easier than dealing with those hokey um, you know plastic rolls that you get for home use. So once you've got it all rolled up, if you're going to do this a while, take a good heavy-duty foil. Again, you get that at the club store. It's much, much different than just a sort of cheap little 12-inch roll of tin foil. That's really thin. It's going to rip. If you get good heavy-duty foil, um, then you wrap all that in the foil, then you can label the outside. You'll get a good long time out of that frozen fish. And I definitely don't advise using um, zip bags. In my opinion, zip bags are garbage anymore. They never... I mean, those things leak, they rip. I mean, it's, it's, and talking about rip, it's one of the biggest rip-offs there is of these expensive zip bags, um, whether they have a zip on them or, you know, just the, the thing that you squeeze together, you know, green and blue makes green, whatever it is. Those, um, those just don't work very well. Not, I don't recommend those, and they make freezer versions of those. I don't use those. And luckily for me, my neighbor is a butcher, and uh, he's got all the butcher paper I could ever want. So that is how, Jason, I would um, put that fish up. Thanks for calling in the question, and uh, thanks to all you TSPers out there. Um, keep calling in those questions, and I am here to answer them. And uh, if anybody needs any direct help, it's Keith at HarvestEating.com. Don't forget the podcast. Also, our spices and olive oil in the store. Thanks so much, folks. Jack, this is Bill in Western North Carolina. I appreciate what you do with you with the Survival Podcast. I have a question for you regarding uh, the dehumidifier. There's been a lot of rain in Western North Carolina this year. Uh, issues with mold where I'm living, so I got a dehumidifier, set it up, and got a, an insane amount of water from the dehumidifier. I'm curious as to what your take is on the fact that it was mold where the dehumidifier drew the water from. If I put it through a you know a ceramic filter like a Berkey filter, if that would be doable, just trying to build some redundancy into my uh, water system and curious as to your take on how that process would go as far as water through the humidifier. Thanks for all you do and uh, look forward to hearing my question on the podcast. Thanks. Bye. 
Okay, here's the thing with the dehumidifier and dehumidifier water. Do not drink it. Do not drink it. Do not drink it. There are all types of bacteria and things like that that grow on the condensers in those things, the worst of which may be, and there might be something worse, but the one I really worry about is called listeria, and you do not want it in your body. Could you boil that water and make it potable? Sure you could. I just don't think it's even worth messing with it. Um, using it for irrigation is fine, and that is about the only way that I would use it is for irrigation purposes, and I'm going to bend this one around you. If you're in an emergency situation okay, where your electricity is down, and you can be generating no water with a dehumidifier. And if you're in a situation where you really need water and can't get it from any other means, odds are you're not going to have electricity to run the dehumidifier. Now, as far as using a dehumidifier to make water and store, now you're growing listeria. That's great. Um, so I would use it for irrigation purposes only. On that note, we just completed a really cool little project, myself and Josiah, on the side of our house. Uh, not a dehumidifier, but the same type of thing. I would never drink this water, okay? Any water from, like, air conditioners and, and dehumidifiers and things like that, they are not designed to create potable water. There's no care or concern whatsoever to the quality of the water that comes off them. The water's a byproduct of, of their function, all right? Do not drink it, do not drink it, do not drink it, all right? Water with it in the ground, yes. Yeah. So what we did, we have this huge 90-gallon trash can. It might be a 100-gallon trash can, really, uh, with wheels on it that was here from a recycling company where you put your recycling in. That recycling company no longer exists, and the garbage people won't let us use it, even though it's exactly the same as the garbage can that you have to buy from them. It just doesn't say their name on it. It's the exact same kind of can. They won't let us use it as a waste receptacle, and they won't take it. So we have this thing sitting around. On the side of the house, in this little alleyway between the garage and the house, there's a little thing comes out of the, the wall for the air conditioner unit. And that thing sits there and drips all day long. Drip, 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 drip. So we stuck like a five-gallon bucket there, and it filled up in a day. It's a lot of water. It's humid this time of year. We're going to be running the air conditioner anyway. So we put the 90-gallon uh, or 100-gallon can up on leveled cinder blocks, drilled a hole in it, put a fitting on it, put a hose on it, cut a hole in the, in the top, and, and glued with a, with a, a super glue style adhesive uh, some hardware cloth on it so mosquitoes can't get in there. Uh, that way the top can be closed and the water just drips through the cloth. And when my wife wants to water the stuff in the front yard now, she just takes the hose, lays it where she wants the water to go, turns the little handle at the bottom, and water goes to the garden. Cool, huh? So we've actually created a water harvesting system for the residual water off of our air conditioner weeper thing that takes the water so that it doesn't make a, you know, a, a, a pool up in my ceiling and ruin my house. Uh, now, is this a smart way to make water? No, this is a lot of energy to make some water. We have lots of water available. But the water's being created anyway, and now instead of making the side of the house this sopping wet place with mud, the water's being put to effective use. So dehumidifiers, air conditioners, anything that are generating atmospheric water can certainly be harnessed and put to work. Um, but, you know, don't drink that water. Um, I wouldn't even... I wouldn't rely on like filtering for that water. 
it will probably be okay, but you're knowingly dumping contaminated water into your filtration system. Every filtration system comes with the same instructions. Start with the best water you can get. All right? It is not the best water you can get in all but the worst situations. Um, it's far worse probably than water in a mud puddle. The mud puddle has mud and whatever's in the ground. The, the condensers in these pieces of equipment have this long-term, damp, open-air time where they can grow and cultivate this stuff. It's, it is probably the most likely toxic water you can get your hands on after it's been running for a while. Um, which is a good case for spraying stuff down with some bleach once in a while as well. All right, with that, let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack, this is Josh from Kentucky, and I was just listening to your uh, call-in show that you did on the 23rd, and that sparked a question for me about savings and uh, retirement. And um, this is that question. You mentioned in the show that uh, you gave an example. You said, if you contacted me several years ago and said, I can only save 6% of my income, um, you know, that I would recommend to you, okay, we'll put 3% in a match 401k and put, or your other retirement vehicle, that is, and put 3% in a savings account. So my question for you is, well, what would your advice be now uh, as far as, you know, savings goes? You said that was several years ago. Um, of course, I know you don't like 401ks or IRAs, and I'm not a big fan of them either. Um, obviously, banks don't really, you know, give you a return at this point as far as interest goes for the risk that you're exposing your money to. So, I mean, same question. Uh, you know, if I could only contribute, you know, 6% or 10% of my income towards savings, uh, what would you recommend at that point? Thanks. Okay, so let's start off with the fact I don't hate 401ks and IRAs. I actually like IRAs better than 401ks. Because you have more control over your money, and in a 401k, you basically get, you know, a few things to pick from that your employer got somebody to pick that doesn't really know his ass from a hole in the ground as far as being the best options for you. Um, and they're subject to a lot of scrutiny and regulation and things like that. And if you're going to do one, if there's a Roth option, I recommend you take the Roth option. Um, my recommendation of if you're going to invest in a retirement style account, a tax deferred account, of only put half of what you can afford to save for your retirement in their stance. It's never changed. That's why I wouldn't, that's why I don't say it's different because it's not. I mean, no more than half. If it's 5%, 2.5%, and 2.5%, it's 10%, 5 and 5 I'm not even saying to go that far. Some people are saving 20%. You could go 10 and 10, uh, but maybe you don't want to. Maybe you want to cap your retirement contributions at 5 and put 15 somewhere else. That's your decision. I'm just saying don't do 100% into those things because you may find you need or want to use the money for something, and there's a lot of hassle, expense, and, and, and ropes and hoops and red tape and crap to deal with. I'm also more and more concerned that they're going to federalize, nationalize retirement accounts at some point because the government's looking at those trillions of dollars of your money and thinking, that's our money. I know we made a deal with those people. That's This is the people, and it's the people's money, so we're going to steal the people's money for the people. right? So they're looking to do it, and I think Poland just did it this week. It's not like it's without precedent. It probably won't happen as overtly here, and it may be that they kind of find a way to trick people into doing it voluntarily, but I don't like it. 
I, and, and it doesn't mean I'm going to get rid of my IRAs or not ever putting money in them ever again or anything, but I don't like it. Now, what to do with your cash? Three years ago, I would have said, if eh, nothing else, throw it in a bank account. Maybe open up two or three bank accounts and put it in two or three different banks just to mitigate your risk. But with the way the government is behaving lately and the way that they're eyeballing everybody's everything and with banks paying you absolutely crap for interest, what's my incentive to have money in the bank? Um, I would say that it makes a lot of sense to have a good safe like drilled into the hole, like to the, the foundation of your home, uh, fireproof, burglar-proof, that type of thing, and keep some of it in cash, and maybe significantly more than I would have recommended in the past. Um, you know, they say one day we might go to a cashless society, you might have to bring it back into the system and all. Well, you deal with that when that happens, you know. You, you, I mean, if that happens, that happens, but, I mean... Seriously, until that happens, cash is cash is king. Now I don't know anybody doesn't take cash. You know I really don't. So having it in cash isn't a bad thing. And they never get upset when you put money in the bank. They generally don't. they get upset when you take money out of the bank. I've got some uh, rules and some misconceptions that are cleared up about suspicious activity reports and things like that from someone that actually does it for a living for Monday's show to talk about that. But um, I wouldn't fault anybody for keeping. Fifteen, twenty thousand dollars in cash anymore? I really wouldn't. I, I, I completely understand why you would. Um, if you're not going to put it into a stock or a bond or an investment of some sort, and you just want it so that it's there and safe, what freaking incentive do I have to put it in the bank? I mean, what incentive do I have to to, to have it on the crosshairs of people that might want to sue me someday? Point zero zero one percent freaking interest? No, thank you. Now, am I saying don't have any savings accounts? No, I'm just saying that maybe you mean to make three buckets now. The retirement account money, bank account money, and the cash pile. Maybe the cash pile needs to get weighted a little heavier with some ways that things are going right now. I don't know. This is a very personal thing I don't like to get deeply into. But my concept of, you know, never put all your money in and a 50-50 split is kind of a base guideline uh, if it ever changes, I'll let you guys know. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. John in West Virginia. What kind of man doesn't carry at least a pocket knife? I, I can't lay my mind around who, what self-respecting man does not have a pocket knife in his pocket. My daddy, since the day I can remember, has always had a pocket knife at least and a handkerchief in his pocket. And they're dual purpose. I just don't understand. Even my mother carries a pocket knife in her purse. I, I just can't lay my mind around it. Everybody, all the time, hey, let me use your knife. Let me use your knife. Uh, well, that's fine. Like, where's your knife? It's, I just can't understand it. Maybe I was raised different, but, man. All right, man. Thanks a lot. <laughs> that's awesome. It's true. I, I don't get it either. I mean, you know... One of the things I recommend people think about carrying, and I think this is great because a, a full-size knife doesn't necessarily work everywhere or go everywhere. Gerber makes a little thing called an EAB. It means exchange blade. It's a little folding knife. It uses a standard razor blade and has a clip. You can carry it as a money clip. The reason I like it so much is, let's say I need to cut disgusting, gooey, sticky, nasty tape off a box. 
do you really think I want to take my custom-made Patrick Rorman badass special knife and get that crap all over my knife if I don't have to? Or if I need to do something with a knife like that's just kind of like going to ding it up a little bit and all. I ding up a 50-cent razor blade and flip it around and then throw it away and get another one. So I like that. And I generally carry a Columbia River Technologies uh, open-on-draw knife as my main uh, my main big knife, and I carry a neck knife. And the neck knife has become one of my favorite things, and I'll tell you why. I spend a lot of time in the summer wearing a bathing suit. And while I carry my pocket knife with me, like John's saying, all over the place, um, that don't work real well in a bathing suit. So, you know, I might be in the pool, but I might run over to the garden and maybe need to cut some mint for some tea or something and all, and that neck knife's always there. So um, I, I've become a real fan of neck knives in addition to pocket knives, and I pretty much have both on me most of the time. But there's times where a neck knife makes more sense than a pocket knife. But I'm with you, John. Uh, there's a lot of those things, the questions, though. What kind of self-respecting man fill in the blank? There's an interesting uh, comment fodder. I want you guys today that take time to go by the blog, let's play the what kind of self-respecting man game. What question do you have about everyday society today? What kind of self-respecting man fill in the blank? I'd like to see that from people that could start some interesting discussions on the, on the blog again. Today's episode 1202. If you're listening to it into the future, and I'm speaking you to the speaking to you from the past, that might be worth one digging up just to see what people said. John, love hearing from you, brother. Let's take another call. I think we've got uh, one more call. Yeah, one more call, and we're done for the day. And this is an interesting one. Hi, Jack. This is Matt from Wisconsin. I have some sumac, and I was wondering if there's any good uses for it. A little background: I have a I just purchased approximately a two-acre property. And I've about a quarter to a half an acre of a sumac grove, the non-poisonous kind. I've done a little bit of research, but have not found any good reason why I shouldn't uh, get rid of this semi-invasive uh, uh, species. Um, I was also wondering whether your thoughts on using direct application of pesticides to get rid of it. I've read that if you cut it and then treat the stems with Roundup or something like that, the, the two most common varieties of sumac, and probably what you're looking at uh, in the United States, are staghorn or smooth sumac. Uh, they're both are non-poisonous and quite useful plants. We'll talk about uses for them in a, in a bit. People get very concerned about sumac because there is a poison sumac. It is all but impossible to confuse the two. Poison sumac, it's white berries that hang down and... and Staghorn and smooth have red berries that sit up in a cone. They kind of re- they don't really look like, but they kind of remind you of a crepe myrtle if you know what a crepe myrtle looks like. Um, the berries of non-poisonous sumac varieties often start out a whitish green and over time turn to a red. So sometimes people worry about that, but it's again it's it's all but impossible, and you have to worry about it because you would never use them till they ripen anyway. Now, these are not berries that you pick and eat out of hand. Uh, they don't have like a big juicy plump thing going on. It's basically a furry little tiny bit of flesh wrapped around a seed that's almost as big as the whole berry. And then the hairs uh, are actually where the magic is. The magic is in the form of absorbic acid, 
What is absorbic acid? Vitamin C. It is a vitamin C tree. And what does absorbic acid taste like? Sour like a dun 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 lemon. Yes, lemon. You have pink lemonade trees in your in your backyard. Would I hesitate to cut quite a few of them down to make room for more productive things? Not at all. It's this is a very um, hardy tree. It is an edge species. You will not find sumac growing in uh, in the middle of a forest. You will always find it in edge environments and in in, in early successional models. So you might have a grove of it now. But as things come up around it, the only place that it would exist in 10, 15 years, if you left it on its own, would be on the edge. As other larger species take over and shade it out, it does not do well. It has to have openings, glades, clearings, edges of some kind to survive. It is not a canopy species. It is a subcanopy species is what it's, it's really its functional place is. So it's an edge species. So I would pick out a few at least that... You will, like, as you plan what you're going to plant and what have you, that are going to be able to have the light they need, and I would, I would reserve at least a few of them. If you live in an area where they're common, it's not a huge issue because likely any, you know, random, uh, abandoned piece of publicly accessible land and road sites, it's everywhere anyway. But having it on site's kind of cool, and it's a pretty plant, especially If you do a little bit of work and do some pruning and select a more mature species, it has great color in the fall, so it's got beauty and vitamin C. How do you use it? Cut the berries off of it. The easiest way to use it is to make basically sumac tea, which tastes remarkably like pink lemonade. And you just kind of do it to taste. But I usually cut off about five or six uh, berry clumps to about a gallon of water, maybe eight, depending on how big they are. Sometimes you get really big ones, sometimes you get little bitty ones and you need more. Just cut the whole thing. Don't pick the berries off. Just cut the whole cone, the berry cone, put it in water, and then you just you mash it up. You can use your hands, you can use a spoon, whatever. Just kind of mash it up, strain it into a container, and then sweeten it. You can sweeten it with sugar, you can sweeten it with honey. I like to sweeten it with stevia. And then pour it over ice. And you'll swear to God you're drinking pink lemonade with a little bit of a fruity kind of something added to it. So that's one thing we can do with it. Where it gets interesting is cooking. Anything you would cook with citrus works wonderful with sumac. You can dry it and store it so that you can use it whenever. But my favorite way to use it is fresh. And if you like to fish in the early fall and you bring home some fresh caught fish and you just don't, you know, don't fillet it or anything. If it's a scale fish, scale it. If it's like a, a, a thin scale or a, uh, a skin fish, you know, you don't have to worry about it. Catfish, I would go ahead and skin it. A trout, I would just leave it alone. A bass or something like that, I would scale. Gut it head on and take a couple sprigs of sumac and a couple sprigs of dill and some butter and a little bit of garlic and stick it inside the fish. A little bit of butter, dill, and sumac on top of the fish wrap that in foil, and cook the fish till it flakes. It's amazing. And there's the fresh quality and something in that when you cook with sumac that way that you don't get from lemon juice. I can't really explain what it is, but if you taste it, you'll like it. And anything you would do where you would use lemons in a recipe, you can substitute sumac. And if you want to, if it's for, if it calls for lemon juice and using it whole doesn't really make sense, then what you do is make a concentrate. 
Okay, so what you would do is get, you know, instead of eight or ten to a gallon, get like 20 sumac heads and do that to like a cup of water or two cups of water. So put it in the water and, and just, you know, mash it up and take that one out and do it again and take that one out and do it again and really, really extract as much as you can. Filter that and put that in a jar and keep it in the refrigerator. It's pure vitamin C. So we use that when we want to keep fruit from going brown and stuff. So in a refrigerator, it'll store a long time, and you can use that as a lemon juice substitute. It won't be as acidic or strong as lemon juice unless you really make it highly, highly concentrated. So you might use, you know, if it calls for a teaspoon of lemon juice, you might use a tablespoon and a half. But it will substitute in for anything like that. Um, and again, it's vitamin C. So it's just, it's one of these things that everybody looks at as like an annoying weed. And I want to talk about a word you, you, you kind of let in and you pulled yourself back on it, invasive. It's not invasive. It's a native species. It's native from New England all the way to Texas. It is called invasive because it is one of the pioneering species that when you destroy land and the first shrubs and trees start to grow, it's one of the things that shows up and can handle the damage that we do to property. It's one of the things that shows up after a disturbance, whether designed or otherwise, to heal land. And we have this screwed-up mentality now where when something's highly successful, we call it invasive. We are the invader. We are the one that screws up and strips down the land, and it's okay to clear land, but when we clear it, we need to think about how do we rehab it, how do we manage it, how do we put it back into productivity both for the earth and for ourselves, and if you don't do it, nature will, and one of the things that it might send is sumac. We have juniper trees in Texas that are being called invasive in their native habitat. It's a little tiff of mine. If something is native to a place and it's showing up in large numbers, or it's moving past its range, we've probably done something to cause it, or the, 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 the climate itself has changed. It's gotten warmer or cooler somewhere, and it's now capable of moving. It's not invading. It's doing its job. Now, do you probably have too much of it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but would I get rid of all of it? No. And is it a problem? No. Will it make you itch? No. Is it useful? Yes. And can it be very, very pretty? And the answer is definitely yes. Um, it, it's, there's no reason if you're taking a lot of it out not to uh, get yourself a, a mulcher and use it as a mulch. Uh, but don't get rid of all of it because it has a lot going for it. And it's just a new way to look at something that people consider a trash tree. It's not a trash tree. It was an extremely valuable plant to Native Americans. Uh, I grew up in Pennsylvania where the stuff was all over the place, and no one seemed to have any respect for it. And uh, when I learned about it on an outdoor channel show in Pennsylvania, I can't remember what it was, but like one of those local ones, um, I became fascinated with it, and I've been drinking sumac tea uh, and enjoying the hell out of it ever since. When we moved back to Texas, I don't see a lot of it around Dallas-Fort Worth. I was very happy just about a month ago. When I realized that on my road on the way in, out in the ditches, there's quite a bit of sumac. And it's probably in the next day or two, uh, I'll pull over somewhere and, and take some cuttings and, uh, and make some sumac tea. Maybe I'll make a video when I do. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.
Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Revolution.